morning. Our next case is Bradshaw et al. versus Maiden et al. I'll note that Justice Dietz is recused in this case. We'll hear from the appellant. Thank you, honors. Good morning. My name is Gary Mawney. I am one of the attorneys for the plaintiff appellants in this matter. Uh, and my co-counsel, Jim Roberts of Lewis and Roberts, is here with me this morning as well. Um, I'll be doing the arguing. Um, I'd like to reserve 10 minutes for rebuttal, Your Honor, if I may. Uh, it please the court. Um, we're before the court on the basis of a 58-page dissent at the Court of Appeals. I clerked over there. I don't ever remember a 58-page dissent. Um, the dissent catalogs, as does the record, numerous material factual disputes the type of factual disputes that would normally entitle plaintiff uh, to survive a summary judgment motion. SS and C, the defendant in this case, there's nothing special about SS and C in the law. Uh, they're susceptible, it's susceptible to the same negligence and gross negligence standards and other standards that any other defendant in North Carolina would be. Uh, the appeal boils down to this, Your Honors. Uh, the trial court, for reasons that uh, are error, as we've asserted in our briefs, uh, applied a fraud standard, an intentionality and knowing standard to all of the claims asserted by the plaintiffs in this case. Basically, across the board, required us to make a showing of knowing and intentional conduct. That's not consistent with our law of negligence in North Carolina nor is it consistent, at least entirely, with the gross negligence law in North Carolina. There are other claims, for instance, the Securities Act claim that relates in terms of the elements of proof and, and so on, and I'll touch on that at the end. Uh, the, the trial court, in employing uh, this intentionality standard, when it reached the gross negligence question, applied it there as well under a long line of North Carolina Supreme Court and Court of Appeals precedent, you can prove gross negligence either by showing willful or wanton conduct. And wanton conduct is considered to be reckless conduct. We believe the record shows that in this case in great volumes, Your Honor. The trial court also, uh, as the dissent recognized on multiple occasions, made credibility determinations, and made other resolutions of fact that were not appropriate for a summary judgment motion and disposition. All of those things were error, Your Honors, and they're material errors that were not consistent with Rule 56. <clears throat> Plaintiffs should have been able to show on a new or should have known standard their negligence claims. The proof also shows that SS&C was either extremely reckless as our experts, and there were three, SS&C presented none, three experts saying that what happened here were extreme departures from the standard of care that applied. SS&C in this case he, uh, was an accountant. The proof in the record is that it was. It had accountants, an accounting team led by someone named Mary Ann Needfeld in this matter. In the record, and what I would like to do is walk through some of the key pieces of the record that demonstrate plaintiff's claims and why the summary judgment was improvident. SS&C, this is at uh, Doc Exhibit 317 in the record. SS&C basically says that its reason for existence was fund administration and accounting because of the alleged Madoff Ponzi scheme, which is in essence the same thing that happened here. In this, which is in the record, SS&C touts its, quote, accounting expertise. Says that it brings expertise in adhering to GAAP standards, generally accepted accounting principles. The, the form of accounting standard that most of us are familiar with by reference. Every single month, over a period of about six years, SS&C sent my clients statements via email, capital statements. Enclosed, here's one. This is the one in the record. 
Enclosed is your April uh, 2008 capital statement for your investment in Maiden Capital Opportunity Fund. And they would send, with their logo at the top, every month, a statement to my clients that indicated beginning values and ending values and net profits and that sort of thing. My clients got these for six years. They were never corrected. There was never anything done to say, hey, we missed the mark on one of those or did not, and, and we need to correct it. That never happened. The reason that SS&C sent these statements to my clients is because of a contract that it had with the Maiden Fund. The well, fund. Bef uh, before you go um, uh, proceed to the contract, isn't it true, though, or at least the uh, trial court found as a fact that the capital statements contain ri a written disclaimer and some of the language is uh, prelimited, unaudited, and subject to change, and that actual results may vary, and that no representation is made that an investor will or likely achieve the results similar to those shown. Can you help me reconcile that finding of fact with the statement you're talking about now? Yes, Your Honor. Uh, the auditors are a different type of accountant from the accountants that we're talking about here. Lots of things that accountants do are not audited. That doesn't mean or relieve an accountant that prepares financial information like this from its duty to do that with ordinary care. Penix, one of our cases that, uh, from this court, says that if you have a contract that calls for you to present financial information or other information to someone like my clients, SS&C would send these directly, that they have to use ordinary care when they're doing that. Lots of things that we use in our normal lives with accountants are not audited. That doesn't relieve the accountant that prepared it from the obligation of exercising um, ordinary and due care. Auditor's a different thing. You, you go to a tax accountant, you're relying on that document that they give you back. It's not audited. Quarterlies from big companies that are reported to the S, uh, SEC, they're not audited either. But I can assure you that if the accountant's made a mistake that was material in any of that, they would be susceptible to being sued. And, and that statement, hey, it's unaudited, doesn't mean you can't rely on this at all. In fact, that's the whole purpose of these statements, um, is reliance. And that's um, the reason that just saying, hey, it's not audited, doesn't relieve the person that prepared it from an obligation of ordinary care. But, but this, the finding of fact goes somewhat further than unaudited. It says subject to change, actual results may vary, and no representation is made uh, that the, the results will be likely achieved. Uh, I'm imagining, and I'm just anticipating your friends on the other side making the argument that uh, this uh, was a disclaimer and that your clients were on notice that they could not rely on those statements. How would you like to answer that prospectively before they potentially make that argument? Those statements don't mean you can't rely on, on the statements. Mr. Rizzi, in the record, uh, one of their accountants indicated um, in his deposition testimony, again in the record, that they knew that our clients were relying on this information. And in fact, this is the type of thing that um, they were intended to rely on. It's the reason that SSC exists. Merely saying this might change, sure. Just like when a company reports a 10K and the accountants discover that there was an error, there might be a restatement down the line where they correct something. In this case, there was never any correction, even after it became abundantly clear that there should have been a correction. And while we're on the topic, the offering document, I believe it, it's a memorandum in this, this situation because this is a hedge fund. Had, I believe there's a similar finding of fact along that line in the offering document. Um, is, that, is your position similar there? The, the offering document, and, and we could show the court the provisions in there, but the offering document, again, the SS&C personnel, including Ms. Needfeld, testified they looked at the offering document in terms of figuring out what it is they were supposed to do and the standard that would apply to them. The, we can disagree about what the offering document means, but our expert, who is the, was the head of a, the accounting department at NC State, now he's the dean of the School of Business over there, or College of Business, um, indicated that the things that were in the offering memorandum indicated they were supposed to perform their function according to GAAP, which our expert indicated, testified that they did not. And by the way, I understand the court's reference to findings of fact 
on a summary judgment motion because it kind of looks like that's what happened. If you, they're not, you know, they're not labeled that in the, um, the trial court's opinion. It looks like it. I agree. That's not appropriate on a summary judgment motion. You've either shown disputed issues of fact or uh, that someone's, not enti someone's entitled to judgment as a matter of law or you don't. And those were things that were at issue, the meanings of things, disputed facts. Those are all indications that the summary judgment here was improvident, Your Honor. Not only, thank you, Your Honor, the contract from which these statements came, uh, which our clients, my clients, the plaintiffs, appellants, never saw, but which prompted these statements that they would get, it says at the top of page two, this is in the record I'm reading from Doc Exhibit page, 73, SS&C shall keep at its premises books, records, and statements as may be reasonably necessary to document the transactions recorded by us on behalf of the fund. But instead, what they were doing was literally the fund manager would call these accountants and say, today, and I'm going to, this will be a little bit of hyperbole because I'm going to use the statute of limitations, or statute of liberty as my uh, example would call up and say, today I bought the Statue of Liberty. I bought it for a dollar. And now, at three hours later or a day later, it's worth $10 million. And these accountants would book that in the general ledger of the fund, which they were responsible for keeping, and which is accounting. They would book all that in, in the general ledger of the fund without seeing any documentation to demonstrate that that was real, that to document that in fact, there was a contract for the purchase of the Statue of Liberty, that there was some meaningful reason to believe that it had been bought for a dollar and now was worth 10 million in the space of a day. Whatever outrageous thing the hedge fund manager said to these accountants, they put it down in the books, they rolled them up, all of those numbers, and they sent them out to my clients who believed month after month and year after year that those statements were accurate and the fund had value when it did not in SSC knew or should have known that it did not have the value that they were representing on these statements. The accounting standards, which Dr. Buckless, the uh, accounting professor from NC State, and two other experts in the record from the plaintiffs, we have a total of three, highly credentialed people saying there is no way that any accountant of any kind, CPA, regular old accountant, line accountant, is supposed to put things in a general ledger and then report those out to people without having some documentation that the, the thing even existed, much less what the value was. And our experts testified that this paragraph in their own contract, which, by the way, as Penix and Oates and the other cases that we've cited in our briefs, even if SS&C had set up a different standard for what its work was in this contract, under Penix, once they start sending those statements out to my clients month after month, they have a duty of ordinary care. That's under GAP. That's under our regular setting aside anything about GAP, case law about ordinary care. They did not do that, Your Honor. The contention that somehow uh, the other side was not on notice or that the court was not on notice, if you look at the complaint, you can just see that that's just squarely not true. I'm looking at amended complaint, paragraph uh, 293, talks about their professional obligations and requirement to, to maintain professional standards, including accounting gap. It says SSC did not do these things and breached the relevant standard of care with respect to each of these duties. Complaint goes on at paragraph 302, and there are dozens of these in the, in the amended complaint. As alleged, SS&C breached its professional duties of care and was grossly negligent in doing so. If you look at the forms in our uh, North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure, you get back to, uh, I think it's Rule 84, for instance, where uh, the legislature promulgated statements about what suffices to state a negligence or a gross negligence claim. And you look at that and you look at this, they're exactly the same. They're, there's no difference. Um, so whether you're applying Haney, uh, which is a case that basically says from the Court of Appeals that it's not the label you put on something, it's the allegation, or you look at Savino, 
And you look at Savino from the majority opinion, or you look at the dissent in Savino. Basically what the thrust of the entire opinion is, is if you've alleged it, it's fair game. And it's not as though people didn't know in the litigation that we were litigating negligence claims. If you look at this, the case management order from the supplement in the record, you've got the trial court judge, Your Honor, saying that plaintiff's position is that their claims arise out of SS&C's negligence and negligent misrepresentation. That's the trial court talking. And then on the next page, the trial court says that the defendant's contention is that plaintiffs were contributorily negligent. So clearly, all of these things were front and center, and then when everybody's deposition was taken, in this case, on the expert side, it was all about what is the standard of care. Um, and just to sort of pound the point home, in the record at Doc Exhibit 1025 are how SS&C accounted for the fees that they were charging the fund. And you can see for yourself, it's in very small print, but if you look in the middle, they called them accounting fees. There are emails, all kinds of traffic uh, where this has taken place. And clearly, we have stated both negligent claims, negligence, and gross negligence. We have documentary support. We had expert support. They had none. On the question of whether they knew or should have known, a good example here of what happened is that Doc Exhibit 562 in the record is where it begins. And what happens here is in 2008, there's an email exchange between the fund manager and the, fund, the lead fund accountant at SS&C. And what's going on here is that the fund, man, the, uh, the fund accountant, Ms. Needfeld, can see that thousands of dollars are leaving the, the fund's brokerage account. And on the statement itself, it says that it's going to Maiden, the fund manager at Bank of America. She can see it on the, on the brokerage account. And she says, I see these funds being wired out of the account hundreds of thousands of dollars in that particular period. What are these? And he says, oh, it's an investment in Blue Earth Solutions, private 200,000, it's for a Business Week subscription. When he's telling her that, they're not collecting share certificates, they're not collecting receipts. When I show up at my firm after I leave the court today and I've got a cab ride or I've got a hotel bill, got to show that there's actually a bill, a receipt, before I get paid back for it and before my firm will book that in the general ledger of the law firm. None of that happened here. And so um, what the fund manager, or the, the fund accountant saw, Ms. Needfeld saw, was money going to the Bank of America account. When Mr. Maiden was saying it was going somewhere else. They knew, Your Honor. In 2009, Ms. Deedfeld goes out on uh, maternity leave. And there is a sequence of emails that reflect that they knew that Mr. Maiden could not demonstrate that he owned any of this or almost any of it. It's in the record at Doc Exhibit 670. Mr. Locke, one of the accountants, uh, working on the, on the fund because of Ms. Deedfeld's maternity leave absence. He writes the fund manager after he looks at the file. And what does he say in that email sequence? What he says is, I can't find any documentary support for anything. Will you please, Mr. Fund Manager, and it's in there this explicitly, will you please send me the backup? And he even calls it the backup for these investments. Some time goes by. Of course, he doesn't hear anything from the fund manager because it doesn't exist. Finally, he writes the fund manager back, says, hey, where is it? And the fund manager ends up sending him an eight-page fax, and I'll just talk about one of those. SSC's got over a million shares of Blue Earth on the books and the, uh, for the private investment in Blue Earth. And what happens? He, uh, he can only produce a share certificate for 500 shares. And when you see that as an accountant, You've got a million on the books that you've put there. The fund manager is showing you 
500 shares. You know something's wrong, and you know that those statements that have been sent out are inappropriate. We met any standard that applies, Your Honors. I'm going to uh, sit down for my remaining 10 minutes. We met any standard that applies, whether it's a knowing standard or whether it's a negligent standard. They have no experts to say what the standard of care was, whether they abided by it or not. And we do, and those are factual disputes that should have prevented the entry of summary judgment at the trial court level, Your Honor. We encourage the court to um, apply that uh, logic of the dissent, and I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, counsel. We will hear from the appellee. Good morning, Chief Justice, Associate Justices, may it please the court. My name is Jeff Recker from Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, and I represent the APLE defendant, SSNC Technologies, Inc. Your Honors, two courts below, the Business Court and the Court of Appeals, already have gotten this case right and dismissed or affirmed the dismissal of all claims against SSNC. We respectfully submit that those decisions should be affirmed. Now, the positions advanced by the plaintiffs on this appeal, we believe are fundamentally inconsistent with North Carolina law, and if adopted, would vastly expand tort liability in this state. And that's for two basic reasons. First, plaintiffs asked to expand the standard for gross negligence to encompass constructive knowledge or should have known claims, and to sidestep the demanding showing that this court has required in Yancey and other cases for claims of gross negligence. Second, appellants seek to impose a rule of liability that would impose on a service provider like SS&C a tort duty to third parties to undertake work, here the verification or due diligence on investments that wasn't contemplated by its contract. We believe those positions are fundamentally wrong as a matter of law. Now, in this case, SSNC was retained to act as a back office administrator for a hedge fund exclusively managed by a man named Steve Maiden. Counsel on the other side likes to call SSNC an accountant. I'll get to that in a minute. But the contract by which SSNC was retained was an administrative services agreement. SSNC was identified to the investors in this fund in the offering materials as an administrator. And that's the work that SSNC performed. Now, it was revealed many years later that Steve Maiden was perpetrating a fraud. He's now a convicted felon. He was sentenced to seven years in prison as a result of his fraud in connection with this fund. But as Maiden admitted, he lied to SSNC just as he lied to the plaintiffs in this case about their investments. And the courts below correctly rejected plaintiffs' claims seeking to hold SSNC liable for a fraud about which it did not know, and under a theory that SSNC was somehow responsible to investigate or uncover Maiden's fraud. And as the business court found, SSNC's contract did not require it to verify Maiden's investments or the fund's investments. Its job was back office bookkeeping, to maintain books and records of the fund based on the information supplied by the fund or its management. That comes right out of the contract. The books and records prepared by SSNC were based on the information SSNC receives from the fund or its management. And there's no dispute that happened. The fund told information to SSNC, or SSNC had it in the fund's brokerage statements, and it based its books and records on that information. Now, we've, we heard a lot from the other side about gap, about source material, about whether SSNC should have been going out to get third-party information to check the claims that were being made by the fund. That's not required by the contract, and the contract is to the contrary. So we believe that theory is wrong. I'll get to why in a second. But I believe it's also designed to escape what's a fundamental failure of proof on plaintiff's gross negligence claim. Because at bottom, what plaintiffs are saying with this third-party documentation theory, whether you want to call it a gap theory, whether you want to allege that the obligation came from somewhere else, what they're saying is that contracting parties in this state 
can later be surprised in tort that they owed a duty to some third party to do a job they never signed up to do. Here, that's verifying the investments in the fund. And we don't believe the tort regime in this state operates in that way. But let me start, I think, with the failure of proof we believe the business court found and the Court of Appeals approved or affirmed that the plaintiffs have on gross negligence. The gross negligence standard is demanding. And as this court recognized in Yancey, it connotes intentional wrongdoing. Yancey provides that gross negligence is an act done purposely and with knowledge that the act is a breach of duty to others. It's a conscious disregard of the safety of others. So what that means is that plaintiffs have to come forward with substantial evidence showing that SSNC knew the information it was receiving from the fund was false and that it nonetheless proceeded to transmit that information to plaintiffs anyways. Counsel, in this case, if actual knowledge is a necessary element of gross negligence, then what, what would separate gross negligence from actual fraud here? I think it's intent. I think it's state of mind. So I, I think that's where we fundamentally disagree with the plaintiffs here. I don't think the business court did apply an intentionality standard. The business court recognized that the conduct has to be knowing and that it has to be willful. That's consistent with the ANSI, a purposeful act with knowledge that it's a breach of duty to others. And so where I think the dissent, for example, got it wrong and plaintiffs get it wrong is they look to cases like Pleasant Pleasant's an intent case. So Pleasant is about what state of mind, for example, gross negligence connotes. And what it was looking at was, is gross negligence an intentional tort in the sense that uh, it's an exception to the workers' compensation law? So the recklessness piece, from our perspective, comes in on state of mind, meaning- But, but let me take that a step further. I didn't mean to cut you off, but- so then, does, grow, does willful blindness or maintaining plausible de deniability, asking for documents and not getting them, is that always going to defeat gross negligence for, like, when are we going, how are we discerning the intent when there's an, a, a question asked, a reasonable, what seems to be an accounting question asked, and then nothing's followed up? I think what you have to show to make out a gross negligence claim is that you know your conduct is violating some duty you owe to someone else. I think the business court, you know, I don't agree with the rhetoric from plaintiffs. I think the record's to the contrary. And what the record shows is that request was made for documentation to have information available so that the fund's auditor could actually review it at the end of the year when he or she came and said, we'd like to see the, the documentation. But they but said setting that, that aside. As well. I mean, presumably there was some other reason they were Right. Well, that actually, you know, the auditor supplying information to the auditors is actually one of the seven or eight discrete tasks that SSNC undertook in its contract. But to, to come back to your question, Justice Riggs, and I'll, I'll give you maybe a poor analogy, but I'll do my best. I think gross negligence, if you think of a quintessential gross negligence case, imagine you're a mine operator. You own a mine, and you get report after report that says the conditions in the mine are unsafe. Don't let anyone go down into the mine. You're now on notice that if you continue to allow the mine to operate, you're knowingly violating a duty that you have to somebody else. Now, as a mine operator, you may not have the intent that someone gets injured if you keep the mine open. You may not want the mine to collapse, for example, and probably you don't. But it was reckless for you to continue operating in the mine with knowledge of the facts that doing so is a breach of the duty to others. And so to take your analogy a step further, if the mine operator was asking, what's happening down there? What's happening down there? This is a mine, it's a dangerous place, and nothing, and yet the mine operator doesn't do anything. Yeah, well, I, I, I take your point, Justice Riggs. I think that hypothetical is different from the record in this case. The record in this case is on one occasion, a request was made for backup information for the purpose of SSNC discharging a different obligation under their contract to coordinate with the auditor. That's one of the seven or eight tasks. It's not an instance where the record reflects or the evidence reflects some concern or awareness on the part of SSNC 
where it's reaching out and saying, I'm worried about what's going on here. Can you pro provide us information? But doesn't your argument about the failure of proof on the gross negligence claim depend on us accepting the notion that they were not in, they were not engaged as in accountants so, um, and is therefore not um, professionally required or understanding that GAP might apply to the work that they're doing, that they were something other than accountants? Isn't, don't we have to accept that premise that they were something other than accountants? Your Honor, I, I see those as kind of two different issues. I think to make out the gross negligence claim, they have to produce substantial evidence that SSNC in fact knew and appreciated that the information it was receiving was inaccurate, or in the case of, and, and I'll address why I don't agree with that in a moment, but in the case of gap or accounting, I think you'd have to prove actual knowledge on the part of SSNC that it believed gap applied here. It was obligated to provide, to follow gap or, or abide by gap, and it nonetheless elected not to and consciously disregarded the risk of doing so. And I don't think that's what the record shows. But why wouldn't the expert testimony in this case demonstrate that? The, the experts saying, you know, basically, if you're doing these functions, these are accounting functions, and anyone who does accounting understands what gap is and understands that they should, that, that those are the standards they have to apply. I, I think the issue with the expert evidence is it's separate from what threshold issue is that they have to prove on gross negligence which is a fact question, which is knowledge on the part of SS&C that it violated some obligation, that it's acting with conscious disregard of another person's rights. And as I understand the expert testimony, they're saying anyone who purports to prepare the statements and the kind of financial records that were being prepared would understand that they are doing accounting and would understand that they have to follow GAP, that they would know that, that that's part of being an accountant. Yeah, I, I read the, I, I treat the expert opinion somewhat differently. I think it's a sense, they're trying to use it as state of mind evidence. I don't think that's an appropriate use of expert evidence. What they're doing is they're saying, well, our experts say these are the obligations under GAP. We think they weren't complied with. That evidence, I submit, doesn't tell you anything about whether SSNC knew there was under some obligation to apply GAP. And I, and I don't think they were. I think the business court was correct that there's no GAP obligation here. Um, I don't I, think the expert evidence can stand in for that. Justice Earl Sisten, I just, um, as I look at document exhibit 317, which is the SSNC website printout, SSNC was advertising its GAP compliant accounting expertise and selling its fund administration services. Is, is that accurate? I mean, because we've made a big difference between accounting and fund administration services, but if they're baking, if you're baking your gap compliant accounting into what you're selling in fund, admi fund administration, there's something challenging for me then in understanding why you're saying you don't have to comply with gap in, in fund administration. I don't have that document in front of me, but let me try and address why I think the gap argument they make here doesn't work. And that's, that's for a couple reasons. One, as I've said, our view is that we were acting as a fund administrator, right? And that's consistent with the actual contracts and documentation of this fund. But ultimately, whether or not SSNC is considered an accountant, a quote unquote accountant, I think is a distinction without a difference. Why do I say that? The only reason, as I understand plaintiff's argument, that they're alleging that SSNC was an accountant is because what follows from that in their view is that there was somehow then an obligation on SSNC under GAP to go and obtain third-party documentation to verify the claims being made by the fund. That's why they make the GAP argument, as best I can understand it. And we know that's not the case here because the contract itself provides what information SSNC will base the books and records on. And that's information that comes from the fund or its management. And in addition to that, the contract itself doesn't say 
that SSNC is to apply GAAP. And if you look at the partnership agreement, and we made this argument in our brief over a couple of pages, if you look at the partnership agreement, it lays out four categories of documents, of financial records, that the fund would supply. One of those is audited financial statements. That says it's subject to GAAP as a guideline. That's the language of the partnership agreement. One is statements of net income and net losses at the end of a fiscal period. What does that mean if you run through the definitions in the partnership agreement? It's documents that on an annual basis lay out net income or net losses. The partnership agreement says that document is subject to GAAP as a guideline. The other thing, the other category of documents the partnership agreement talks about are unaudited monthly performance statements. Those are the statements, the capital statements that SSNC sent to the plaintiffs in this case pursuant to the terms of its contract. Partnership agreement does not say that those are subject to GAAP. In other words, the partnership agreement has two sets of documents that it says are subject to GAAP, neither of which were prepared by SSNC. The one financial report that SSNC did, did prepare is mentioned in the partnership agreement and it's not indicated as being subject to GAAP. So let, let me come back to, again, why I think they have a failure of proof, which is none of the evidence they point to actually indicates that SSNC knew that the information it was receiving from the fund is false. And let me take a step back for a minute and talk about the evidence they don't have. There's no testimony from Maiden saying that SSNC knew about his fraud or knew that the information he was providing was incorrect. In fact, the evidence is exactly to the contrary. In his criminal proceedings, Maiden said, I was lying to SSNC just as I was lying to the plaintiffs. There's no communication between SSNC and Maiden where they're talking about how the information's incorrect or engaging in some sort of conspiracy. There aren't any internal documents or emails where SSNC employees are raising some concern about the information it being provided by the fund being untrue. There's no email where someone says, man, this looks really iffy. Is this accurate? That's not in the record. There's no warnings from SSNC, not to harken back to my mine operator analogy, but there's no warning from a regulator, from an investor in the fund that says, hey, we think something suspicious here. Could you let us know what, you're, what you know about it? None of that. But as I understand your argument, you're basically saying that Maiden could have said anything he wanted to to them. Their only duty was to write it down and it, it wouldn't matter what he said, they could, not, they could not be grossly negligent for failing to question it. I don't think our argument needs to go that far. I think you do need to show, under Yancey and other cases, some knowledge that what you're doing is a breach of duty to others. That's what distinguishes gross negligence from ordinary negligence. It's a conscious disregard of the safety of others. But it's a, it's a good segue, Your Honor, to I think why the pieces of evidence they've actually highlighted don't show any such knowledge on the part of SSNC. And let me put it in context to some degree. I mean, SSNC produced in this case 53,000 pages of financial schedules it worked on over the years. And they've highlighted in their brief, we heard a little bit about it in their presentation, only a handful of issues that they want to point to that I think you know, in many cases, and I'll talk about a few, are inconsistent with what they're actually arguing here. So for example, the Bank of America account. I, I, I heard from my colleague that that was an account for Maiden. It's actually a, an account that was held by Maiden Capital LLC. It's the general partner of the fund itself. And there's no question that money moved from the fund to the Bank of America account, no question about that. And those transactions were recorded in the books and records by SSNC as instructed by the fund. But there's no evidence that anyone at SSNC thought those transfers were for improper purposes. To the contrary, when Maiden told SSNC what those transfers were for, he indicated they were for fund-related businesses. 
business, tax payments, fees for tax accountants, fees to the North Carolina Secretary of State. There's nothing sinister about that. And if anything, I think the inference to draw from it is contrary to the one plaintiffs do. I mean, if it were the case that SS&C had any awareness that the fund was operating as a fraud or that Maiden was perpetrating a fraud, why would he be inventing this complicated fiction to explain what these transfers were about? Um, they talk a little bit about valuation. Again, if you go back to SSNC's contract, it provides expressly SSNC is not responsible for valuation. Valuation, along with every other management decision belonging to this fund, is exclusively vested with management. So, again, I don't think there's any inference to be drawn, and we think the business court was quite correct in looking at this evidence and saying it doesn't establish any conscious disregard on the part of SSNC of a known risk to somebody else. So, what would have been enough to establish a conscious? disregard. I, I, you could imagine a situation where you had evidence where internal employees at SSNC were expressing some skepticism or concern, that they were aware of some risk, that maybe what they were hearing wasn't right. And, and if we are, were to read the email from the um, accountant who took over while the primary accountant was on maternity leave, if we are, were to read that email phrasing differently and, and, and not simply, we want these records for the audit, but can you show me something that explains um, these numbers? Wouldn't that be exactly what you're just talking about? No, I don't, I don't think so, and I don't think that that's what that email actually says. I think that email is a request for information. It's not a communication that reflects some concern about the accuracy of the information being supplied by the fund. But, but if you're correct that SSNC felt it had no responsibility whatsoever to review any documentation provided by Maiden, but to review any documentation um, in order to prepare its reports, if, if they were under the impression that they didn't need to provide any documentation, why would he be asking for it? Again, I think the reason he was asked for, and this is what the testimony was, and the testimony is unrebutted, by the way, the reason he was asked for was to have it available for year-end audit purposes. Remember, this fund had an auditor. It was supposed to supply, under the partnership agreement, audited financials at year-end. And so then why would he say that it, was, that it was valuable and also for audit purposes in the email? I, I think the reason, I, I think they're consistent with one another, Your Honor, would be my response. I mean, it's important to have that information, and that's what the witness testified about so that it's available when it came time to audit the fund. I mean, ss is not an auditor, right? This isn't a situation where SS&C is supplying an audit opinion, where it's communicating to third parties that it's reviewed the financial statements, that the financial statements are fair and accurate in all material respects. That's the work that's done by an auditor. Right, and I just, could, could any, Ongoing concern, preparing financial statements such as this survive an audit if the financial statements are not prepared according to GAAP? That would be the responsibility of the auditor, right? I mean, the auditor would come in, look at the records that are maintained. If they have an issue from a GAAP perspective or a GAAP perspective, they would raise that issue. That's kind of the order of operations here in terms of having an administrator who's really, essentially, this is just outsourcing of what would otherwise be the fund's responsibility to maintain its books. But the auditing standards are different from the That's GAAP right. standards. That's right. And my question is, how could any set of financial statements survive an audit, be, be, be determined to be you know, correct and survive an audit if they weren't prepared according to GAAP or, or, or some set of standards? I, the financial records in that circumstance I think would be reviewed by the auditor for purposes of whether they complied with GAAP and satisfied the auditor's requirements under GAAP. So again, I mean, just to, just to touch again on the GAAP issue, I, the fundamental reason why I think that argument fails here 
And I think this is what the business court concluded as a legal matter affirmed by the Court of Appeals, is there is no requirement for SS&C under its contracts, under the partnership agreement, and of course SS&C is not a party to the partnership agreement, to actually prepare the books and records or maintain the books and records in accordance with GAAP. It's just not there. And again, the only reason this GAAP issue, as I understand it, is in the case is because plaintiffs argue that GAAP has this third-party documentation requirement. I mean, we don't agree with that. That's a fact issue, so I'm not arguing it here. But we know that's not the case because it's contrary to what SS&C actually agreed to base its records on. Um, so you believe that a um, you can contract around the common law um, standard of care owed to a third party, even in a contract that's not the third party isn't doesn't negotiate. Isn't I, I wouldn't put it quite that way, Your Honor. I think from our perspective, the contract, the work that one agrees to provide under a contract is relevant to the scope of the duty that might be owed to third parties. So I do think, and I do think it's consistent with a number of North Carolina cases, that where you agree to provide one set of services, you're not then held in tort to owe a duty to a third party to supply other services. And that's, again, I think this is actually consistent with Pinnock's. They like Pinnock's. I actually think it supports our position. Pinnock says you may owe a common law duty to discharge the thing agreed to be done. So the question is, what's the thing that was agreed to be done? And from our perspective, that is the scope of your duty in tort to some third party. And so that's, you know, I mentioned it's consistent with a number of North Carolina cases. I'd point to Cassell, which is a case decided by this court, or Hoisington, both of which actually involved security guards. And the courts in those cases looked at the contract between the security guard and the landowner. And in both of those cases, I believe the contract said something to the effect of the security guard will provide a deterrent for crime or vandalism or what have you. And in both of those cases, the court said that's the extent of your duty to third parties. If there is a duty to third parties, strangers to your contract, that's the extent of it. It doesn't extend in those cases to actually having to protect someone, to protect a third party from some harm or some attack if you're acting as a security guard. I think the dissent is, tries to distinguish that case. Plaintiffs try and distinguish those cases on the ground that they turned on kind of common law distinctions amongst licensees, invitees, trespassers. I think Cassell's quite, clearly, quite clear in the text of the opinion that the outcome doesn't turn on those distinctions. And Hoisington actually comes a year after this court collapses those kind of three distinctions in favor of a common law standard of care. So and just to make one further point, Justice Riggs, on, on your question, we haven't contested on this appeal that a common law standard of care applies to the extent SS&C owes a duty, and I think that duty is coextensive with the work it actually agreed to do. The common law standard of care is gross negligence. So, we, so to the extent Penix talks about not altering the common law standard of care, that's not a position we've taken on this appeal. So let me address very briefly in the time we have left. Um, you know, one, one of the arguments that plaintiffs have raised to kind of avoid the problems with their gross negligence case is that they brought mere negligence claims. Uh, we think that's wrong. We think the business court got it right that they're not permitted to assert, as they did here, a mere negligence claim for the first time at summary judgment. And it's not a situation where this is just a mislabeled claim or some technical pleading fault. Plaintiffs filed an amended complaint that had 13 distinct causes of action. Negligence was not one. Negligent misrepresentation was not one. They, were, they only asserted gross negligence claims. Then plaintiffs disclaimed at the motion to dismiss mere negligence claims. Here's what they said to the business court when the motion to dismiss was briefed. They said, quote, these are not should have known claims. They said, quote, 
The complaint does not accuse SSNC of ignoring potential red flags, quote. Instead, it accuses us, it says that SSNC, quote, actually knew that Maiden's claims were false. Do you disagree with the business court when it explicitly said that all the underlying elements of ordinary negligence had to have been adequately pled in, in alleging gross negligence? No, of, of course not. I mean, the underlying elements of negligence, duty, breach, cause, harm, are elements of gross negligence as well. But the mere fact that you pled those lesser elements in service of bringing a more demanding claim I don't think puts anyone on notice, especially here where plaintiffs disclaimed mere negligence claims, that you're also pursuing the lesser negligence claims. So I, I don't think that's consistent with notice pleading. And in fact, I think it kind of creates an unworkable rule. I mean, we'd effectively be saying anytime a plaintiff brings, for example, an intentional tort case, a defendant in that case should assume that they've pled every other lesser variety of negligence, even though it doesn't appear in their complaint. Counsel, I believe your time's expired. All right, thank, thank you very you. much. Rebuttal. The defendant attached uh, to its brief something that wasn't in the record on appeal you just heard of, where it claims that somehow we waived our negligence claims that um, said, first of all, they moved to dismiss gross negligence. We presumed, of course, in North Carolina, when you bring a negligence claim, it's very common that you'll see a contributory negligence claim. So it's, in, our, in our pleadings in North Carolina, we say they were negligent and they were gross negligent or grossly negligent almost in the same sentence. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that we were not bringing that claim. Um, the, uh, if you look at the trial transcript, you'll see that we, were, we said to the court, we did bring a negligence claim. You're asking us about gross negligence. We'll answer that question. Um, Your Honors, in, in, I guess I've been practicing almost 29 years. Um, I don't know that I've ever had uh, anybody in a case say, yes, I did it. I committed fraud. I don't know that I've ever seen an email exchange where the defendants were uh, saying, boy, we really pulled one off today. I wish I was as fortunate to have some of that discovery in some of my fraud cases. Um, that just doesn't happen. You have to prove it circumstantially. And then this idea that this court has not said multiple times, crystal clear, whether it's the Foster case whether it's uh, Pleasant or whether it's uh, a case that's cited, I think, in both of those, Woodson, substantially certain. That means state of mind. Uh, that means constructive knowledge. This court has repeatedly confirmed constructive knowledge on multiple occasions as a basis for gross negligence. Then I hear about the email with Mr. Locke. Oh, it's just about an audit. Well, even if it was just about an audit, that wouldn't change the equation. Um, but what Mr. Locke actually said, the SS&C accountant, it's, this is at Doc Exhibit 672. He says, hi, Steve. I don't think we have finalized documents for your restricted investments. If possible, could you send that over so that we may keep a copy for our records? That's an enunciation of an accounting principle or what they should have been doing. We're not saying there's supposed to be some document detective, is this a forged check? Is this a forged contract? You have to have some objective evidence, according to our experts, that demonstrates the transaction actually occurred before you put it into a general ledger, a check, a receipt. None of that's here, share certificate. The fund manager writes back and says, um, you mean like certificates and docs describing my ownership or what? That's exactly what we're saying. That's exactly what he was asking for. Wasn't anywhere to be found in the file. And then he writes back and says, this is Mr. Locke. This is SS&C's accountant. Any certificates or finalized docs showing ownership? That's the first sentence. 
Sometimes certificates are, aren't readily available. So copies of any docs that you use for your own internal proof of ownership should suffice. Again, that's exactly what we're talking about here. They talk about what they should or shouldn't have done. This is hedge fund accounting. Just because they call themselves an administrator, they could call themselves a duck hunting lodge. But if they're performing accounting, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, everybody here knows what it is, regardless of what you call it. Um, they just have a fancy term, hedge fund administrator. It means you're an accountant. The fund manager says, we'll take a little time to track down some. We'll get you what I've got when I get a moment. And when you send 500 shares, when your books say a million something, you know something's wrong. Mr. Locke, what does he say he's working on? He says, I will have the accounting finalized tonight. But somehow we're not doing accounting, even though all these documents from these well-qualified accountants are referring to accounting. I will have the accounting finalized tonight. And when Mr. Maiden shows up not once, but multiple times, and there's multiple instances of this in the record, and he says, the, the information uh, starts at Doc Exhibit 615. When a fund manager shows up and says, hey, I just, um, I bought SR, I've got my hands on some SLRX. I cannot show you that I paid for it. But I want you to book it. And in that particular instance, he said it was worth immediately three quarters of a million dollars. And they put that down, and they reported that out. The same thing, uh, Blue Earth 2, which was preferred, restricted investment, private investment, same thing, million dollars. Then there was another one. Let's see. This is the Kit Media Spiv 4, and she asked about it. Here she is asking. This is Ms. Needfeld. This is at Doc Exhibit 625. Hi, Steve. Would you have any documentation on the new kit digital piece that I could look at? I just need to know some details so I can accurately reflect it in your holdings. And then what does the fund manager write back and say? She says, the way I have it represented you received this security free of cost. He writes back, yes, it is free of cost completely. And you add all of this up, and it was a substantial portion of what the fund was supposed to be worth. And you've got the fund manager saying he got millions of dollars of assets for free. If my son or daughter, if you have a son or daughter, and they show up with a Ferrari in your driveway, and they say, Dad, look at my new Ferrari, and I got it for free. Nobody has to tell me that that story isn't true. Or at the very least, if I think that my son or daughter was particularly industrious, I would at least ask some questions. I want to see the check. I want to see the receipt. I want to see your earnings statement that, that enable or loan paper to show that you legitimately got this. You know better. Our cases say constructive knowledge will support gross negligence. You don't have to be an accountant to understand that when somebody is presenting themselves to you and saying put this in the general ledger, put this on these statements going out to my clients, grocery store owner, school teacher, and they're looking at these things and believing that over a period of time that they can be relied upon, so I'm going to put more money in, I'm going to make a decision about whether to take it out. And you've got these shenanigans. If you want to talk about how books get cooked, I've never seen, I've done a lot of accounting malpractice. I've never seen anybody say, I cooked the books today. Um, but when you're reducing the cost of something like they did with the Kit Media investment, Reverse split, they take it 
from a, a public company does a reverse split, they take that split and use it to, to uh, um, uh, by a factor of 35 to reduce the cost of an entirely different investment. After a while, all these mistakes, which only run in one direction, point in one direction, and that is somebody knows or somebody's not doing their job. These were accountants. Three experts in the record before the court said this was profound negligence, extreme departures from the standard of care. They've got nobody to counter that. And I would submit it's because it's indefensible. It's indefensible. And to stand here and say that an accountant of any kind, CPA, regular, following GAP, following our expert says there is no standard under which this would be appropriate. This was a lot of money. They, my clients were relying on these statements and there was nothing behind them other than the logo that you saw on the cover from Thank a multi-billion dollar company. Thank you, Your Honor. Appreciate it.